think we desperately need some way forward because look I'll, I'll be honest part of this book for me is a, uh, a an urge to people or you know listening to do something other than just get together and complain about yeah. you know the situation hello and welcome to the vintage podcast with me lena norms today we are talking bringing people together how 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 can we do that especially in these kind of trying times it's definitely been something that has preoccupied um my thoughts and to direct those thoughts in a much more productive way than i could on my own i thought i would talk to eric kleinenberg uh, eric kleinenberg is a professor of sociology and director of the institute of public knowledge at the new york university uh, his pioneering research into the power of social infrastructure led to his appointment in 2013 as research director for president obama's one billion dollar program to rebuild the region affected by storm sandy so who better to find out how to really move forward uh, than this multi-award winning author and sociologist um his book, Palaces for the People, argues that we too often take for granted and neglect our libraries, our parks, our markets, our schools, our playgrounds, our gardens, all of our communal spaces, really. And his kind of decades of research shows that these actually might be the key to making things better. So without further ado, um, let's talk to Eric. Eric, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about your book. We're really excited to hear about it. It's so nice to be here. Thank you. <laughs> How's Britain so far for you? <laughs> it's surprisingly delightful. Yeah? Yeah, the sun is out, crisp fall days. Yeah. I'm very far from the United States, which feels really good right now. Yeah, it's a peaceful, well, potentially not as peaceful over here as well. But it, uh, I mean, the problem is things are falling apart everywhere. Yeah, because you live in New York, right? I live in New York yeah, City. Yeah, but you're from Chicago. Originally. Yeah. You did that study about Chicago, didn't you? I did. Um, and that was one of the catalysts of the book. So do, do you want to talk about that first? Yeah, or? it's the beginning of the book. I mean, it's the it's a study I did years ago about mm -hmm. a heat wave that mm -hmm. killed more than 700 people mm -hmm. in just a few days in Chicago. And what was so interesting to me about it is that uh, the deaths followed a pattern that you would expect in some ways. Um, the very poor, vulnerable neighborhoods turned out mm -hmm. to have the highest mortality. But they, the pattern also was quite surprising in other ways. So, for instance, I discovered doing my research that there was a, a set of neighborhoods that looked identical statistically. Like the mm -hmm. demographics were the same, uh, racially segregated, very poor, uh, a lot of older people. And they should have fared the same during this disaster. But instead what I found is a certain set of neighborhoods were actually the most deadly places you could be in Chicago. But then another set of neighborhoods that should have been deadly were actually among the safest places to be. In fact, many were safer than the most affluent parts of the city. And I really wanted to understand why and, and how. So I started spending time in the different neighborhoods. And, and what I discovered is that the places that were quite resilient had an incredibly robust public sphere. The, the sidewalks were intact and very active. Uh, there were a lot of commercial establishments that were drawing people out and into these social occasions. They had a lot of nonprofit organizations that were active, uh, including churches and things like YMCAs. Um, they uh, did not have any real abandoned buildings or mm -hmm. empty lots, and so they were quite vital places. I came to see these 
um, systems as, as being part of a social infrastructure. That's where I kind of came up with this concept of social infrastructure. It's the kind of underlying set of physical places and organizations that shape how we interact. And in the neighborhoods that were resilient, the social infrastructure was quite robust. Mm. But then I found another set of neighborhoods that were incredibly deadly. And there, what you found is lots of empty lots and abandoned buildings. The sidewalks were kind of broken down. Uh, the parks were mm. uh, overgrown and poorly maintained. Not a lot of commercial establishments. And when you live in a social infrastructure like that, you become all the more likely to kind of hunker down in your home and stay to yourself. And, and what that meant during the disaster is people weren't going outside to help one another and no one knew which neighbors were safe and which neighbors needed extra assistance. And so people were, were incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. What I later learned is that it wasn't just that the, those neighborhoods were vulnerable to the heat wave, but if you live in a neighborhood with a weak social infrastructure, your life expectancy is a full five years lower than if you live in a neighborhood with a strong social infrastructure. Wow. So that was really the moment where I, th I realized, you know, there's something going on that's shaping our social lives, our capacity to build relationships that we don't really have a concept for. And, mm. and that's kind of where social infrastructure and comes from. Because, again, I suppose there's this this um, conversation that your book's part of that's the, the, the real um, um, striving to marry the idea of medical health and, and mental health, you know, and, and like, yeah. really pulling those together because it's, it's potentially something that we don't, invest in or see, but actually it has a, a huge impact. Well, for instance, you know, one, one of the chapters in the book looks at this issue of crime mm. and, um, you know, how do you reduce crime uh, in places like the U.S. or the U.K. and especially in urban areas where there's a lot of violence. And I'd noticed just walking into the studio today, a report came out in The Guardian showing this dramatic spike in um, police stops of uh, black people mm. and also the use of violence. And that's very much in line with what's happened in the U.S. is we've had this kind of use of broken windows policing. It's kind of um, the, the theories like if you have a disordered physical place in a city, that signals to criminals that you know they can get away with anything here because no one's minding the shop. Mm. And so what you should do is throw lots of police officers at places that look disordered with broken windows and things right. like that. And yeah. so, so you do stop and frisk policing and zero mm. tolerance policing. And the result has been enormous numbers of people incarcerated yeah. and, you know, distrust high distrust and, yeah. uh, uh, of, of the police, especially by, uh, mm. uh, by blacks, by minorities. And I went back and looked at this and thought like, well, what would have happened if instead of reacting to broken windows problems by sending in more police, mm. we fixed the windows, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, yeah, shocking. Yeah idea but it's less of a plaster and more of a <laughs> you have plaster band-aids yes band-aids exactly so um, it turns yeah. out there's this group of scientists who have been interested in that same question in, in, in the mm. city of philadelphia which has like fifty thousand uh abandoned properties you know, empty lots boarded up buildings and they started working with the city and with this horticultural society and they they've been running one of the most amazing experiments in the social sciences where they randomly select you know several thousand properties uh, to treat and they and they treat them by like converting a, an abandoned or empty lot that has very high grass and weeds and lots of debris and they turn it into a, a small little pocket park with grass and trees and a, like a wooden fence it doesn't cost much to do this and then also if it's an abandoned home um, which is being used by squatters or people going in and out of it to do all sorts of things um, they'll board it up and secure it so you know it's it can't be as dangerous and they have the most amazing findings, including the fact that, well, first of all, 
you get a 39% reduction in gun crime around the boarded wow. up buildings when you do it. So it's kind of staggering. It's, it's held up over time. And also it turns out that the gun crime doesn't just like reappear on the next block uh, because uh, yeah. it, well, we have this idea that um, crime is you know based on people who are criminally disposed, mm-hmm. right? But it turns out that a lot of crime is also just situational. Mm-hmm. And if you change the social infrastructure, you can remove the, the context, you can remove the situation yeah. that, that makes crime so much more likely to occur. Um, so, so we see that, but then I was thinking when, with your question about health, mm. that these researchers just also discovered that if you plant trees in, in these parks, you also get these dramatic improvements in mental health yeah. and a reduction of stress-related diseases. So it's, mm. it's pretty remarkable the set of things that you can do by improving the built environment, the, pl- the places yeah, where we live. because I suppose we think of these things as backdrops to our lives, but actually they're kind of more in the foreground than we think. The characters are almost playing a part in how our societies play out. Very yeah. much so. And, and so the idea of, you know, this book about social infrastructure is, you know, so infrastructure is kind of by definition underneath, right? It's yeah. supporting yeah. something that we really pay attention to, in this mm. case, the social. And... I think so often when we get together to talk about, you know, the decline of civic life or civil society, we're, we focus on, like, our moral values or our cult- cultural preferences, and we mm-hmm. think of, like, why don't we value, you know, connection enough? And, and what I'm arguing here is that there's a material foundation for it, mm. this infrastructure, yeah. and, and I, want us to, to, I want us to look more closely and to see this part of our world that is generally invisible so that we can appreciate both what we can get out of investing in it and also mm. what happens when we neglect it. Yeah, it's that kind of, um, like, we're looking for metaphorical common ground. Right. And you're literally like, we actually need physical yeah. common no, ground. we need the common ground itself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you need to plant the thing. Um, yeah. How do you feel about social media? Because I know there's, like, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that he said that he, he, he thinks he creates, um, well, Facebook creates meaningful communities and strengthens our social fabric. Do you... Would, do you agree with yeah, that? You're I'm la- guessing. I'm you're guessing. laughing a little bit. I feel skeptical you myself. You can't even say it at this point anymore. You know, yeah. Facebook is good for community and mm. good for democracy. I mean, that was yeah. our hope, yeah. um, you know, years ago when kind of the Internet started and social media started. And mm. I, I'm, you know, as much a user as anyone else. Like, you can find me tweeting away most afternoons. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm on Facebook, you know, posting photos, you know, with yeah. people my age who are old enough mm-hmm. to use Facebook because no young person uses it anymore. Um, but 2 billion people use Facebook and a bunch use Instagram as well. So mm-hmm. I get the appeal of these things. My argument with Zuckerberg is that after the 2016 election, he made the, in the U.S., uh, uh, he made this declaration that Facebook would be the social infrastructure of the 21st century and argued mm-hmm. that, you know, just as we used to have, you know, uni- unions and uh, churches and community centers that serve these great purposes of binding us together, that now Facebook is where we'd get meaningful communities. And I just think... Quite Icarus flying too yeah, close to the sun, isn't I, it? I don't know. Mm. I feel pretty skeptical about mm. that. Um, I think that you know that Facebook can be really good in certain circumstances, like if you're a gay child in a small town and you can't mm. find other people who are like you, I think it's pretty liberating and empowering to know that there's other people out there mm. If you have a rare disease and you're looking for information and companionship, you might not be able to find them in real life, but you can find them on social media, and that's mm. wonderful. But I think that ultimately our relationships are just so much more meaningful and satisfying, and our communities are only real and vivid if they're 
there for us in real life mm. if we're with another person in the flesh and blood. And you know, I, the people who understand this better than anyone else are Mark Zuckerberg and Larry and Sergey mm. uh, and Jeff Bezos. Like the people who run the giant tech companies right now have invested literally billions of dollars each in building the most amazing social infrastructure in the world on the campuses where their employees work. Yeah. So if you go to Facebook's office in Menlo Park or Apple's mm. in Cupertino or Amazon in Seattle uh, or the or the versions of, the, you know, the smaller versions of their art offices they have here in England, mm. you see the great attention to detail that they put into the design because they want people to have, you know, a, a private quiet place to work, but also shared spaces where they can gather together mm. and um, have serendipitous encounters with mm. uh, colleagues they might not ordinarily work with and, um, you know, pleasant social interactions that bind the marketing guy with mm. the engineering woman and mm. build these communities. And they need to do it in the tech world because, A, those relationships and connections are mm. good for creativity and innovation. Mm. B, it's an incredibly competitive part of the labor market, and mm. these firms are always competing with each other to hold on to the best employees. And what makes an employee get dedicated to a place is not the product most of the time. It's the experience they have in the place, the relationships they have, the communities they form. Mm. And they don't, they don't do that over Facebook. Yeah. And Mark Zuckerberg knows that. So, Mark, mm. if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> we know what you're up to. tell the truth, man. <laughs> Be honest. Be yeah. honest with us. We know what's really going on so, there. So I suppose for, for Mark Zuckerberg as well. I'm sure he's an avid listener. That'd be um, great. Yeah. Um, he so he he does it to you know but because the end goal presumably is also that it's very profitable to to keep these talented people in to keep people working for their company. When it comes to um, like communities that aren't aren't quite as as obviously profitable when you when you put in the social space, um, do they still make financial sense? Are they still like economic? investments well i mean yes they do and so far mm. as you know when we're better connected you know we're healthier we're happier uh you know we're less likely to need uh support from the government and, yeah. and the public sector because we provide for each other and and our stronger connections you know literally have an impact on our health they reduce our loneliness mm. um they reduce our stress uh, you know we've now seen a you know they, they make us safer as we know from the studies mm. of crime that i just described um, no, I think of um, social infrastructure as vital infrastructure, you know, as necessary mm. for the health of our societies as the infrastructure for power uh, or for water or for transit. And, you know, that's one reason that, uh, you know, the, the book is called Palaces for the People. And, and that's an idea that comes from Andrew Carnegie, you know, who was a, a horrible mm. employer and vicious, you know, capitalist who had Pinkerton's come and beat up his workers when they went on strike. I mean, he did a lot of terrible things. Mm. But he was also a great philanthropist, and he believed in the power of libraries in particular to uh, create sacred spaces and exalted spaces for people who would otherwise have very difficult lives. Mm. And libraries, in his vision, were places where you would go and get relief from you know, your tenement, from your factory job. You would read, you would learn, you would... Uh, build aspirations and then do the things you need to do to do to reach them mm. and so he, he funded more than 2,800 libraries around the world about oh. 1,700 of them are in the U.S. because he was a, a Scot uh, but immigrant to the U.S. Mm. and this idea of that that libraries would be palaces for the people is is really essential I think and it's important for us to remember because mm. um, we live at a time when 
we think that the solutions to our problems will come from the market or will come from a new app. You know, technology yeah. will do it. And yet we also are experiencing the incredible shortcomings of the market and of technology to deliver things that we need. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that, you know, this is not an easy case to make these days. Um, you know, when Theresa May runs England and Donald Trump runs the U.S. Mm-hmm. and we see authoritarian leaders kind of moving into countries around the world. But I believe that, you know, one reason that there's been this hunger for something different is because the market has failed us so entirely and because mm-hmm. people are so frustrated by the kind of rampant inequality and polarization that we're kind of desperate for a solution. And and I guess my book is a plea for us to to, to think about what it would mean to build you know, real resources, real amenities, real palaces for everyone. So, you know, so, so places like libraries are so amazing because they welcome us all in, regardless of who we are, our social class, our ethnic group, our race, our age, mm-hmm. even our citizenship status. And they offer to give us things for free, you know, yeah. that we might otherwise have a hard time getting. So uh, I, I, I try in the book to call attention to a range of places like libraries mm-hmm. that are already doing extraordinary things around the world and that could do so much more uh, if we gave them resources. Yeah. We've talked a lot about libraries and I, I think that as, as book publishers, we're very obsessed with libraries, bookshops. Um, are there any other um, like kind of infrastructures that you think are particularly effective or are they all created equal? Are they, are they all serve different purposes? Like what would you get from a park, say, or... Yeah. Or, um, well, I do. I do love libraries because mm-hmm. you know because they do so many things yes. uh, for so many people, and it's and uh, and mm-hmm. I hit the theme of libraries very hard because they have been under attack, you know, by governments uh, mm-hmm. around the world, but especially in the UK mm-hmm. and the US, where you know we've just not funded them, so they close on the weekends often, or in some cases they close down altogether, despite all the things that they do. Um, but there are other vital social infrastructures. Uh, that really shape our lives in profound ways. I mean, if you have access to a good playground or park near where you live, that can make all the difference for the relationships that you form as a, mm-hmm. as a parent, as a new parent. I mean, there mm-hmm. countless friendships begin with two mothers pushing the same swing sets, you know, uh, because their children are there at the same time. And a kind of conversation that starts one day with a stranger and then re- returns the next week because you happen to be at the same park because it's close by. You know, those are the kinds of things that, mm-hmm. that build community and some sense of belonging over time. Um, I live in a very uh, divisive country, the U.S., right now, and um, we tend to live in bubbles there. And, you know, I write in the book quite extensively about my experiences as a parent of uh, a footballer uh, in the British sense. I, mm-hmm. uh, my, my son is a, an obsessive footballer, and he plays on a club um, that's in Queens, a, a borough uh, you know, too, not you know, too close to Manhattan where I live, but that includes children from all over the region. Uh, it's a very competitive club, and it's it's fa- been fascinating because the, the the kind of football field and the surrounding area where the parents congregate uh, several times a week uh, has become a place where I encounter people I would never meet in my day job mm. and in my neighborhood, you know, people with dramatically different politics and different backgrounds. You know, very few of the parents are native-born Americans. Mm. Um, many are Trump supporters, uh, you, know, for, you know, from uh, part, parts of the city where, where uh, you know, Trump is, is popular. I'm, I'm not. Mm. Um, and these are people with whom I would have probably have a very hard time finding common ground. But we begin with a shared love of our children and a shared love of football. And mm-hmm. we build these relationships that 
start at very, a very basic level, really. You know, start with basic recognition of these um, things we love and build and have built over time into something much more meaningful and substantial. And I think that gives us some capacity to see our, our shared humanity and our connection and to, to entertain the idea that there can be a reasonable person who doesn't agree with us. And unfortunately, we have grown so divided in the U.S. that those relationships don't happen all that often. You know, for mm-hmm. the most part, we caricature one another and we even hate each other, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and we know now that when you have a polity that's divided and one group hates the other group, you know, and, and all kinds of dangerous things happen, including the, the, the kind of dissolution of the whole collective project. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's increasingly important for us to recognize the value of places like libraries or playgrounds or childcare centers or even football pitches uh, as places that, that can bring us together um, mm. uh, so that we can begin to rebuild at the most elementary level. Yeah, because they're kind of algorithmless almost, I suppose. The same with books. You'd, you'd go onto Amazon and it would self-select the next book that you should read and the next thing. So, But with libraries, you can browse. And probably the same with people. You can you get to browse people, really. And I, I think and, that's right. And and that is another yeah. thing about social media. You know, mm. it's, it, it, it does tell us who we should like. Yes. You know, yeah, and, yeah. It, and it sends us into mm. these echo chambers where we're so much more likely to have our perspectives affirmed yeah. um, and mm. to... You know, spend time in in our safe and comfortable bubbles, and so there's this funny thing happening. I think that you know people experience at the national level the sense that there is this great divide, and yet so many people feel um, like they're a part of something ideologically because everyone around them feels the same way mm, they do. It's like a lonely way to be. So it's kind of sh- it's people. stunning when you wake up in the morning and mm. it turns out Brexit. Yes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was or a it, shocking tur- it turns out yeah. Trump. Uh, mm, yeah. and, and how did this happen? Because no one mm. I know is you know, in, in support of this. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and so so I think that you know we now have a tremendous amount of um, mm. scientific research that shows us how the places we inhabit shape our capacity to mm. interact, whether within our group or across group lines. Yeah. And this is something that I have done you know work on for for mm. a few decades. I'm a social scientist mm-hmm. and also. Uh, you, you know, I, I write as well, but but the but the um, ideas in the book you know, are not you know kind of a utopian manifesto. It it, mm-hmm. it it's really me um, explaining a, a kind of world of, of scientific research that shows us a, a different and better way to live and a different and better way for us to to do policy. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I think we desperately need some way forward because. Look, I'll, I'll be honest. Part of this book for me is a, uh, a an urge to people, or, you know, listening, to do something other than just get together and complain about yeah. you know the situation. Mm. Uh, because it's not that the situation is good. I think it's a, we we are living in a dark time, and mm. it's there's all kinds of things that are under threat, including you know democracy itself. Yeah. Um, and and yet, if we just get together and complain about how bad it is, we leave the night feeling. You know, despondent yeah. and lethargic and hopeless, mm. um, and I think we need to f- to start to chart a path mm. forward. Yeah. And, and 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 so I don't think you know investing in social infrastructure, palaces for the people. I don't think that's enough. Mm. But it's the only way I it's can think start. of to begin. Yeah. yeah. So so for that for for people listening, um, I, I'm like the 
this is perhaps something that's too hard to, to answer in a sentence, but how do we move forward? Obviously, there's lots of different roles that people play. Potentially, there's lots of people in power that can change what they do. But as an individual, what, what can people do? Do you have suggestions? Well, so the, the first thing is literally the next time you find yourself at the dinner table or in conversation over the water cooler and you turn to your daily complaint about the situation, mm. you know, you, the, the processing of the, the day's drama, Try to include in the conversation a few items about you know something productive that you could do yeah. that you know people mm-hmm. are doing to change the situation even at the very local level because mm-hmm. I actually find a, a lot of hope and a lot of possibilities at the local level um, and then I think you know call attention to pay attention to as you look around the world the things that are giving you more more capacity to to connect with your friends, with your neighbors, with strangers, mm. uh, places where you see uh, something like community begin to take shape. And, and, and see whether those places need more support, you know, recognition, uh, or, or literal you know, funding from your government, mm. um, from your community. Uh, you know, why has the British government been able to attack social infrastructure like libraries you know what what makes that a legitimate austerity move and not mm. an attack on a pivotal essential national resource yeah. and why is it in the news when it does you know no, why don't we hear about it as that, much as that's right and and i think yeah. part of it is that if we if we think of those things as luxury goods mm. then why should the government pay for that yeah. you know and and there is an ideological group that believes and the article in Forbes magazine this summer articulated this point that you know the library is an obsolete institution. It is no longer uh, serving any real public function because mm. we can all just go to Amazon, right? Yeah. The market has solved this problem. Technology mm. has solved this problem. But but the truth is that the library is more necessary than ever. It's more busy in the United States. Uh, p- you know, people of all ages are flocking to libraries because they provide something that is truly extraordinary mm. and that you cannot get on the market. You know, it's, it's so interesting. I, I honestly think if the library did not exist today, you know, and, and, and you went to Parliament and said, I have this great idea for an institution that we'll have at the national level and we'll put them in neighborhoods throughout the country and, and you know, they will give away um, culture, books, mm. newspapers, new videos, yeah. internet access. We'll, we'll give them to people for free mm. because they're human beings yeah. and they deserve, as human beings, mm. access to their shared cultural heritage. Mm. I think if, you, if that idea didn't exist and you introduced that to Parliament, you would be yeah, jeered out of the room. You know? yeah. uh, but, but the fact is it, did, it does exist and we did build yeah. that and we have supported that. Mm. And it's helped us so far. you know, Tremendously. Yeah. And, and, and so I think that there, it, it, th- there are things that we need to, to build whole cloth anew. You know, and mm-hmm. I write in the book about how you build social infrastructure as you build climate security infrastructure mm-hmm. to deal with the, the new fact that the seas are rising and uh, we, you know, we will soon be inundated and suffering from, from the kinds of heat that we haven't experienced before. So, so there are certain things we need to, to, to build fresh. But there are other things that we have and that we simply need to appreciate mm-hmm. and reinvest in. And, for, you know, our libraries could do so much more yeah. if they were open longer, if they mm-hmm. were updated, if we put money into the, the structures themselves, right? And mm-hmm. the same is true for our parks and our playgrounds, our child care centers, our health facilities. We, we are neglecting essential infrastructure, mm-hmm. and we're doing it at our peril. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Are we going to end it for... at our peril? <laughs> and the, oh, and pe- death and peril. This is such a hopeful book. Um, more libraries. That, is, that, is that happy? Go libraries. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to the libraries we'll so far. There. We'll keep them. But, um, yeah. No, fear is good. I think we, you know, everyone wants fear these days. So. Fear and gumption. Fear and to gumption. Make it, to make it better. Um, thank you so much, Eric. That's and thank really, you for your wonderful book. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Um, Palaces for the People uh, is out now. I really encourage you to grab a copy and see how you can make a difference in your community, especially with the libraries thing. I'm very behind that. If you enjoy the Vintage Podcast and think that other people might too, help other people find it by reviewing it on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. If you want to chat with me and the other Vintage Bookish experts, uh, you can tweet us at Vintage Books. And until next time...